The Christian world needs more spirit-filled teaching. So often we have fiery preaching without substance or doctrine without life. But we seek to join the two. We seek to bring theology on fire. This is Andrew Wilkes. This is Leah Wilkes. And this is Theology on Fire. Hey everyone, this is Andrew. I hope that you're having a really wonderful day. Whenever you're going to be listening to this, I'm going to talk to you today about the most foolish, wise man that ever lived. That sounds very strange. The most foolish, wise man that ever lived. So there is a man named David who is a mighty worshiper of God. And as it was coming to the end of his life, he handed off his kingdom by the will of God to his son Solomon. And this was the wisest man that ever lived, who unfortunately in his old age became the greatest fool. He says this in Proverbs fourteen sixteen, the very book written by Solomon. It says, one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. And in Proverbs twenty eight twenty six, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Solomon was special. You know, he wrote the book of Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes. He wrote the Song of Solomon. This was a very wise man. He wrote many things. He was anointed by God. He was visited by God on two separate occasions, which is amazing. In a dream, he, in a vision, had conversations with God himself. This is what we're told in 2 Samuel 12, 24 to 25. We're told, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him, speaking of Solomon, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And Jedidiah meant loved by God, loved by Yahweh. So this was a very special person. Uh, born in amazing way with a, his own name given by God, loved by God from his birth, chosen by God to take over the kingdom of Israel. And he was blessed with supernatural wisdom and understanding. So he takes over this kingdom from his father. He, I'm sure he is raised and, and trained and educated with the finest, given that his father was a great king and a wise man himself. And Solomon actually asks God for wisdom. The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream in 1 Kings chapter 3, and he asks Solomon, what shall I give you? And Solomon responds, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. Verse 12, Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. And in 1 Kings 4.30, we're told, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. So of all the great kingdoms, of all the wise people, of all of them, None surpassed Solomon, because Solomon was the only one who received his wisdom directly from Yahweh, from God himself, the great I Am, the self-existent God outside of time. 
outside of what we know as reality, outside of space, the one who pieced together the universe, the one who sent out the farthest star, fashioned man from dust and breathed into him, intricately designing his intestines and his brain and his heart and his lungs, all of these things to the cellular level, even to the smallest proton and cork and the smallest parts of molecules that we've not even discovered yet. This is the one who gave Solomon his wisdom. So we can better believe that this man was wise. And like I said, he had experience with God. He was not just gifted, but these two dreams. Then at the dedication of the first Jewish temple, Solomon was on his knees and he was blessing God for giving him the wisdom, giving him the ability, and for making a place in Jerusalem where God himself, Yahweh, would dwell with the people of Israel, where God himself would sit between the cherubim and would dispense his blessings, his presence, his glory to the people of Israel and his loving kindness unto them, to the people he had formed a covenant with on Mount Sinai, on the way out of Egypt. This was that God. And on his knees, before all the people of Israel who had gathered together for this great dedication day, the celebration, he prays to God. And God answers. And glory that fills the temple, fills the temple so much so with his presence and glory that the priests themselves cannot go in and minister because his glory was so thick, was there in response to Solomon's prayer. Amazing. And it was after this dedication of the temple that God himself appeared to Solomon in a dream the second time. And we're said, it's said here in 1 Kings 9, 4, And as for you, if you will walk before me, as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules. If you do that, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Now I want you to remember when God searched for a man after his own heart, he chose David. Because first it was Saul. God rejected Saul because his heart was far from God. He was a very arrogant man. He was a very fearful man who did foolish things because he feared people. And so God wanted a man who loved God with all of his heart. And he took a young boy from the sheepfolds and anointed him. And then after much suffering and much fleeing persecution at the hands of the king Saul, David was crowned king and ruled over Israel. So God was after a man whose heart would be turned completely towards himself, and God was after Solomon's heart. Notice it says here, as David your father walked with integrity of heart. The heart was key. God was after the heart, and it was this very heart 
that tragically would be diverted away by women, captured by the lusts of his flesh, Solomon's heart was taken far from God. And the very requirements given for the blessings of God in that second dream really should have served as a warning. And Solomon broke every single one of those requirements. He truly became a fool in his old age. You've heard of young people, you know, we can often be foolish uh, because we're inexperienced or because of rebellion in our hearts. But perhaps even more sad than that would be a person in their old age who becomes a fool, and they don't even know it. 1 Kings 11, 1-4 says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He clung in love to women from the very nations that God had commanded Joshua, the general and successor of Moses, the general of the armies of Israel, to wipe out whenever they went into the land of Canaan that would become Israel. The very people God said, destroy completely because these people, their iniquity, their sinfulness is horrible, terrible. These were the kinds of people, the kind of influence in their lives. These were perverse women. But you know, David had at least 10 wives. And Solomon, well, he took the sin of his father much further. And this thought has actually caused me pause on multiple occasions. Is there anything in my life that I would allow Perhaps it's not multiple spouses or even pornography, but is there something in my life? Is there an attitude? Is there a thought? Is there something that I do that my children will take and multiply? And in their multiplication, what was not good for my own life will be the absolute ruin and destruction in the life of another. Let God search our hearts on this. But in Solomon's case, it was women. He clung to those in love. Verse 3, it says he had 700 wives. Seven hundred wives. Seven hundred wives who were princesses and three hundred concubines. His wives turned away his heart. A thousand and one, or just a thousand, it would take nearly three years to just kiss each one of them goodnight, as the pastor once wisely and discreetly said. It says his wives turned away his heart, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David, his father. The heart often seems like it's something that we talk about in Christianity, something in the new covenant, something under this covenant of grace, that the heart, that God would come to dwell in the heart of man, that God would want to deal with our hearts. But the heart has always been central to God in his dealing with his creation, with human beings. We're we're told here in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be where? On your heart. This was repeated by Jesus whenever he was questioned by one of the religious elite who asked him, 
Oh, good master, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus repeated this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, with all your might. The heart, the heart. Remember, even in the prophets of old, they were guaranteed that there would come a day when God would actually circumcise their hearts and would remove the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Jesus repeated this theme in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, love coming from our hearts, you will keep my commandments. The problem with Solomon was not simply he broke the commands of God. That would be a very legalistic mindset. Yes, he did. But why did he break those commandments? The heart. Jesus said it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The heart. Love. The seat of our affections, of our will, our emotions. From there comes obedience. Whatever has our heart will have all of us. Will have all of us make no mistake. This is why whenever you see someone who is saved, their very best friends are lost people and they spend time with them, or they begin to get in a, um, a relationship, a romantic relationship with someone who's not a believer, who is a very weak believer, they have their hearts and our hearts will go astray. That is why these things are so powerful. This is why even sin of various kinds, it gets our hearts. Don't forget it was Judas that once the thought had gone into his heart, Satan entered his heart, that then Jesus said to him, go and do what you do quickly at the Last Supper, speaking of his betrayal, because the plan of the enemy had gotten into his heart. So the love of God produces obedience to God. This is amazing. And it was these very words about the heart and about loving God and his covenant that Nehemiah and Daniel prayed. They repeated this very theme. A heart that does not love God does not obey God. But what about us? That's what happened to Solomon. He loved foreign women. They had his heart. But I want to ask us, does ministry have our heart? Does our home, do our home projects have our heart? Do our children have our heart? Is it our reputation? Is it being a skilled person with the Word of God or many other things that would seem holy that have our heart? Or is it sports? Is it politics? What is it that we speak about all the time? Because Jesus said that from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is in our conversation? Age and experience will not make you love God. Age and experience, even with God, cannot keep you. Look at Solomon, these experiences he had with God. Prayer time and reading the Bible cannot keep you. Those are important, but it is a heart of love that brings us to that place. And if all we're doing is getting to the pages of a Bible and saying words to God, but there's no intimate fellowship and communion from our hearts to His, that cannot keep us. Only receiving and returning, giving ourselves to God as He gives Himself to us. This love and intimacy and the Spirit, only this can keep us. Only this, being so intoxicated with Him from a heart of love that nothing then would ever dare take us away from our beloved. 
So I want to give you a little heart checkup here. We're talking about the heart. How do we know if we really love God? We, we, we see very clearly there in the Gospel of John and in the, the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, we're told multiple times by this, this apostle of love, as he was called, about the tying together of obedience and our hearts. But there's a very quick test, a good litmus test here, the body of Christ. How do we love the body of Christ and then more importantly, how do we speak about them when they're not around? How do we speak about them when we're not around? Just take a moment and think right now about your conversations for the past 72 hours. What have your conversations been like about the body of Christ, about other believers in Jesus? Have you loved them or have you destroyed them? Have you built people's reputations up or have you broken them down because they've hurt you? Perhaps you've nursed wounds that you've sustained during your church life. This tells you how you're doing with God, how you treat the body, and I think how we treat the body with our mouth, how with our words, when they're not there behind their backs. That's, that's a really good test. First John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And in James 3, 6, we're told the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, and further down, it is set on fire by hell. You know, if we walk in our flesh, we will do these things, but it's a really good indicator of things in our hearts. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, God himself, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, begins to speak to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the, among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. You work hard, you have truth, you have, you know, what would be considered righteousness here, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. I want us to think about the people of Ephesus. The people of Ephesus were quite special in that they had the Apostle Paul, who was their founder, right? He planted a church there. They had Timothy as a pastor. That's where 1 Timothy was written to, right? Timothy was in Ephesus. He was helping to oversee that church and some issues they have to set things straight. So you had the Apostle Paul, the greatest of all apostles. You had Timothy, his son in the faith, who was really trained and mentored by Paul. And you even had the Apostle John as an elder uh, who was ministering into this church later. So, we're no better than Solomon. We're no better than the Ephesian church. Let us also take heed when we think that we stand, lest we should also fall. Let us be very careful not to think that somehow we are better than Solomon. Their examples, though, 
And we must be very careful not to think that we ourselves are better than Solomon or we ourselves are better than the Ephesian church who had all of this. Which of us could possibly say that we have had that spiritual pedigree, those pastors, those leaders in our churches? None of us could possibly say that. So we must also be extremely careful. We must ask God to search our hearts and we are assured that the Holy Spirit is our teacher and we are assured if we yield to God's grace, if we positively respond to his workings in our life, then we can be assured that, like it says in Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's yield our lives to the potter. God is the potter. We are the clay. And he sees the bumps underneath his fingers, and he wants to work them out so that he can make us vessels for his glory and hold us up before the world. Let us not become foolish like Solomon, but let us be humble and simple, giving our hearts to God. Father, I thank you that it is from the heart of love that obedience follows. Help us to never think that because we obey, because we read diligently our Bibles and our devotionals, or that we pray to you an hour a day, that somehow we are where we need to be. But let it be a heart searching that takes place right now, even when this podcast stops, that you would go to work in my heart and everyone else's heart, not only to convict, but to perfect, to mature, and to sanctify and bring along our hearts and love to you. And may the world see you in us. Thank you for joining us at Theology on Fire. Please subscribe so you won't miss new episodes. All of our information and contact details can be found at theologyonfire.org.